Welcome to the Recovery Stories Podcast, bringing you stories of hope, healing, and triumph over the bondage of addictions, mental health struggles, trauma, and dysfunctional family systems. Our courageous storytellers have chosen to live their journey out loud in order to show others that they don't have to suffer in silence. The stories you will hear are raw, real, and may involve graphic and triggering content. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or are ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 877-351-7504 or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. This is the Recovery Stories Podcast, and I'm your host, Patrick Custer. I'm so glad that you've tuned in with us today and hope you stick around to the end of this episode to find encouragement and hope through this story. Today, I have our guest, Nate, who's going to be sharing his story. I'm excited to um, start hearing from our friend, Nate, who also works with us here at Promises, and um, I'm just going to give it over to you i'm excited to hear your story we had to, we had a bumpy start this morning and uh you know <clears> hey and overcome right? uh, that's right it's, it's, we it's, have, through it. it's a it's kind of a theme in life right now for 2020 right sure <laughs> persistence beats resistance is something like you say yeah so. awesome well let's hear it so um you know, I, my, when we look at family trees and we were talking a little bit earlier on the way in here, we're talking about family dynamics and that's something that's super important. I think mm-hmm. that sometimes people have addictive disorders due to family of origin issues. We know, I mean, I strongly and firmly believe that the disease of addiction is a brain disease. I had the opportunity to work with Kevin McCauley for a few years who really taught me a lot about the science behind addiction and how that <clears throat> manifests itself. Um, you know, I was born in Santa Monica, California in 1965. I, um, I was a noobs baby. Um, you too? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, um, my um, father was married to my mother without his parents even knowing. Oh, wow. So, so um, actually when they found out they were married when they found out that I was born. So in 1965, when you had a baby in the hospital, you had to pay for the services before you left the hospital. And my dad didn't have the money to pay for the services. So he had to go to his folks and tell them, look, I'm married. I've got this, this wife. And, um, I didn't really have a good upbringing as we talk about family dynamics. Um, um, my dad was addicted. Yeah. My dad had substance abuse issues. My mom left him when I was about a year and a half old. I can remember a couple of really torrid fights in the house and and dad choosing drugs over the family. You know, um, you know, I think when I was two and a half or three, my mom couldn't care for me anymore. Um, both of my parents have addictive issues. I can tell you that. Um, my mom got clean. My mom's about seven, almost 18 years clean in the program now. And I was able to help her with that or just kind of be a, uh, anyway, growing up, um, you know, uh, by the time I was three or four, I was in the foster care system. Wow. So, um, 
um, that would manifest itself later on in life with issues of abandonment, self-doubt, you know? Yeah. Um, um, so I had these really loving grandparents that I attribute everything good that I am to them because they taught me about God and they taught me about unconditional love and they, they were there for me. The problem was I got stuck in the social services system and I lived in foster homes from, uh, I have four or five years, real formative wow. early years, you know, um, my mom just couldn't take care of me. My mom was a hypochondriac, probably um, struggled with benzodiazepine addiction and other related disorders. Um, uh, you know, uh, so I, you know, I lived in the foster care system. It took my grandparents about three or four years to get me out of that system. I went and lived with them, which was most the best part of my life, the best, most beautiful experience. I, I, they lived in Pacific Palisade, which is a very nice part of the world in Southern California, pretty close to Brownwood Westwood, pretty close to Malibu. Oh, wow. Nice. Right, yeah. Right down the coast from Malibu. So I found myself and my grandparents purchased a piece of land and built this custom home in 1957. And what happened was all the wealthy folks moved in around them. So they really, they, they, they did okay, but they, we lived in a neighborhood full of movie stars and rock and musicians and, um, so it was a great upbringing. Um, I really, I, during my stay, I, the first time I used the substance, I was eight years old. Wow. Uh, and I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget how it made me feel. I never forget how it was just like relief. And it was like, wow, this is cool. You know, my grandmother was always against me hanging out with those kids out back at school that smoke cigarettes. Yeah. You know, if you, if you run with that group, you're not going to do much in life. Yeah. And I would gravitate towards them, of course. Um, so, you know, started with marijuana, started with alcohol, basics, entry level kind of. Um, sure. Um, went through, I had a, I was a very intelligent. Question, did that, did that continue for you? Um, like recreational use uh, through, um, from eight years, like, did it start then and keep going or was it kind of like a here and there? And I mean, it was, with... it was kind of a here and there thing. By the time junior high, seventh grade, eighth grade, I mean, I could smoke, I could heal, inhale cigarettes. I was eating acid at the age of 10, 11 years old. Wow. I, mean, I was, I got into like hard drugs. Yeah. You know, um, exploration, you know, alcohol was probably always a mainstay. Sure. You know, it was yeah. kind of a catalyst to get the wheel going. Um, growing up in that area with all those kids and it, it was really sadly ironic how all the guys that I lived with in that area, like 90%, a lot of them ended up shooting heroin. Yeah. And they, it, it just kept escalating and escalating. I had one of my buddies had six DUIs by the time he was 23, he was like banned from driving in the state of California forever. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, so, and it's really sad. Yeah, it was really sad. Um, like I said, grew up with some movie stars kids. I mean, I had it was it was a beautiful life, and I took advantage of it, and I and I abused the trust of my grandparents, and, and I stole from them, and I continued to get loaded because that's what we do. I loved the way it made me feel. Yeah, you know, um, it got to a point where I was, you know, the ninth grade was on fire. The summer of ninth grade, it was like daily use. Alcohol.
a lot of marijuana. I really hadn't gotten into the real hard stuff yet. Um, junior high or high school started. I was going to Palisades High School, which was just a great school. And I wasn't going to class. I was just going to my friends and we were using and drinking. And my, finally, one day, my grandfather came home. It was his birthday. I was, we were doing quaaludes by then. Um, I fell asleep in my dinner plate on his birthday and he had enough. And so he told my grandmother, you know, he goes or I go. Wow. Um, so I was sent out to live with my mom. Um, that didn't last real long. Sure. That didn't last real long. So she ended up sending me to live with my dad in Canada. So I went from living in Southern California in a pretty exclusive area to living in Canada in a shack in six months. Um, I was 14 years old. And by the time I was 14, I was drinking alcoholically daily when I could. Wow. You know, I, um, um, I don't know how I got through high school, but I did. I got, when I, I skipped first grade. So I went from kindergarten to second grade. I was one of those EAP. I was one of those exceptionally mm -hmm. intelligent individuals, but my partying got in the way of, the, of school studies and sports. I was a distance runner. I like to run long distance. I like to play basketball. Um, you know, by the, by the time high school came up, I went to live up with my father up in Canada. I didn't know my father. My father had left when I was two. I was reunited with him when I was 14. Um, we flew into Canada because we had burnt up living with grandma and then living with wow. the folks. Yeah. My mom had remarried and was with a, with a gentleman. And there again, the party continued and he's all like, they go or we, you know? And so that was another geographical, I guess. Sure moved to Canada to live with my dad. My dad was a practicing addict, alcoholic. Mm -hmm. um, very, very impoverished conditions. Um, but there was always alcohol. Yeah. You know, um, that continued for two or three years now. By the time I did graduate high school in 1982, and I was full-blown alcoholic at the age of I graduated when I was 16. It turned 16 in March. I graduated in May. And it was just a party. It was just a party. We just partied. That's what we did. Do you remember thinking, uh, you know, that wondering, is this, is this life for me? Or is this, do I, like, I want this for the rest of my life? Or am I stuck? Do you remember your earliest, you know, um, observations of what was happening with you and that it might have been abnormal to... I swear I wasn't going to be like my dad, but that's exactly what I turned into. Yeah. You know, I swear I wasn't going to be like that man. You know, if I ever had kids, I was going to care for him. If I, you know, and you know, I followed right in his footsteps, unfortunately. Um, I went up to Canada with my brother and he about two years into it. We, we had a, we had a house. We lost the house. We moved into an apartment and got to a place where we were living in a shed, literally a shed with no running water. My dad was a printer and it was all about his print shop. And so we, he had all this really, it was an antique printing style. It's called letterpress printing. And um, so we lived in this shed, a warehouse 
and Victoria, British Columbia gets pretty cold in the wintertime. Uh, we didn't have hot water. I would go to friend's house and shower. And stuff. Yeah. My brother a month into it is like, I'm out, I'm going back to California. Um, he came back to California. I followed him about six, seven months later. My father and I got into a fight. We were both really drunk. Um, I hitchhiked from Victoria to California at the age of 17. And that's when all the powder and everything, that's when it was just on. So I used, um, I got to get through this. I used for a lot of years. I, you know, I, I went to my first AA meeting. I was 16 years old. 17 years old. I was 17 years old. I had been drinking a whole night. Um, I was living back in Southern California with my mom. And she walked in and, and there was a mirror on the floor with a razor blade and a fifth of vodka that had a little bit left in it. And she started screaming and says, you're going to an AA meeting. You got problems. Yeah. So I went to the uh, Anaheim Alana Club, 202 West Broadway Street in Anaheim, California. And I'll never forget that day. I had been up basically most of the night. Um, it was a 6 a.m. morning. I want to say it was a Friday or a Saturday morning. And um, I walked into this meeting and I sat down and um, I didn't identify as a newcomer. I didn't understand the dynamics sure. or how the process worked. It is a little different going into 12-step rooms for the first time. There's there's some different language. So, sure. You know, all that stuff. I remember for myself, it was the same experience. Same kind of deal. Yeah. yeah. So. And I was sitting in this room and there was a lot of guys that were really older than me. I don't remember too many women, um, but I remember the meeting starting and I remember them reading the preamble and all the readings and um, they asked for newcomers and I didn't say anything. You know, and it was an hour long meeting. A lot of meetings in California are an hour and a half, kind of different from Tennessee, but um, the first guy that shared started talking about the newcomers that didn't identify and was looking right at me. Like he had a real issue that I didn't identify as a newcomer. Okay. I was stinking like booze. I was pretty disheveled and uh, I didn't appreciate his verbal tongue lashing. And so I said some things that weren't real spiritual and got up and removed myself from the meeting very loudly. Sure. And I went out and I sat on the curb and I waited for mom to come and pick me up from the meeting. So that was my first experience with Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, for me, my experience, uh, I went to treatment three times before I got the gift we call recovery. You know, I was one of those knuckleheads. I, um, for whatever reason, I just was unwilling to do the work. I wasn't ready. I wasn't, you know, I, I believe that I have this friend that says, you know, we have this window of opportunity that approaches us through our life. I don't know how many times we all get this window of opportunity. Everything has to line up just right. You know, like there's got to be a safe place to go. I think a thorough emotional beating is a requirement. So we're in a state of willingness. Yeah, willingness. Yeah. Um, you know, and, um, you know, I started, I went to my first treatment. I think I was 21 years old. Um, it was a long-term indigent program. Um, I wasn't real serious. I mean, I was serious, but you know, I, I stayed at the facility for six months, but I was, I was using three months, four months into it just kind of, um, I wasn't ready. Yeah. You know, I wasn't ready. 
um, you know, I had a series of events, a catastrophic series of events. I mean, I've lost a lot of things. I lost a very, a lot of people. I had a lot of pain, a lot of emotional pain. Um, I'm curious if you might be able to share a little bit about what that you can remember your experience was like that led you to treatment the first time versus the last time. What was, what were your differences internally, you know, and your readiness to change? You know, the last time I went to treatment, I had a bunch of legal issues. I was, um, I had a 502 shortly after I got my drunk driving California, we call them 502s. Uh, I had a DUI. Um, I was driving. I had 30 days. They took my license when I got arrested for DUI and they, and they, they give you 30 days and then you have a, a, a six month or a year suspension period. Wow. So 34 days in after my arrest for DUI, I was in an accident that wasn't my fault. Mm -hmm. Now I was driving on a suspended license. I was uninsured. So I had all this legal stuff backing up. Yeah. So I'm all like, okay, if I go to treatment, I can avoid jail time. Yeah. And something happened to me. Something happened to me. My clean date, my recovery date is July 12th, 1995. Um, so I just celebrated 25 years a couple weeks ago. It was pretty cool. So awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. And it, it you know, I, what I did was I got out of my own way. Right? Yeah. I got out of my own way. You know, the, the series of events leading up to me, um, going into treatment in July, 1995, I went back to the same treatment facility that I was at. I went to the same treatment facility twice. The first time I went, I spent 30 days there and said, you need to go to a sober living. I'm all like, I'm different. I can do this. <laughs> I did. I ended up going to the sober living. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it was great, um, but I wasn't ready. Sure. You know, so the <clears throat> when I got clean in July 12th, 1995, I had a series of events leading up to that in 1995, <clears throat> a lot of tragedy. I um, will back up a little bit. Um, you know, I had lost a son. I got married. I, sh I had no position getting married. I got married. We lost a son. So that was kind of a huge loss. Um, he, <clears throat> he was born about two and a half months premature. And, and um, that was super tragic, but I, you know, I turned to my coping. Mechanism. Yeah, of course. Good drugs and alcohol, yeah. you know, um, a series of events led up to <clears throat> me getting into recovery. Um, my, my condominium that was living with my mom and my stepdad, my wife and my daughter. <clears throat> we were sharing this three bedroom condominium in Anaheim, caught on fire, burned to the ground. Well, didn't completely burn to the ground, but we lost everything we owned. Sure. Wow. Um, so we had insurance, thank God. My stepdad gave me a bunch of money. I went and bought new clothes and other items. And then a week after that, my stepdad had a massive heart attack and died in the hotel while they were rebuilding our condo. So wow. just lost, lots of loss. Yeah. Lots of loss. Lots of like, <clears throat> I think... <clears throat> God, higher power, or something that's like, you know what? You got to get on track. You mm -hmm. got to get back to what you know. So, um, <clears throat> you 
July 11th is the last day I ever used. I'll never wow. forget that day. I'll never forget how I felt, how alone I felt, how lost I felt, how broken I was, how, um, you know, we talked about the, the basic text of Narcotics Anonymous talks about, you know, are we re reduced to living at an animal level? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, that described it perfectly, you know. I um, <clears throat> decided I needed to go back to treatment, so. I had separated from my wife. Um, I was living with my brother and a friend over in East Anaheim and um, we had this cool little house and I had this job and then I had the DUI and then I had the accident and um, I was, I, I got a, I got another job. I was riding my bike to work one day. I got hit by a truck. I mean, I just kept getting knocked down physically, emotionally, spiritually. Yeah. <clears throat> So then I had been taken out of work for a couple of weeks because I got hit by this truck. I wasn't, I was just cuts and scrapes, but, um, you know, I just used, that's what I did. Yeah. And, uh, my brother was getting fed up with me. My roommates were like, oh man. So July 11th, I started reaching back out and I called starting point, Costa Mesa, California. Um, I went back to that facility and they said, yeah, we have a bed for you can you be here this afternoon? And I said, well, I'm riding my bike. So let's do tomorrow morning. So I did whatever you good. Was this the first time you had been the one to make the decision and initiate treatment? No, I had made the decision a couple of times, before, really? but I think, so, I, I think it was really broken. I think it was really ready. Yeah. I was ready to, to have the gift. You know, I got up, um, and I talked to the hospital. I gave them all my insurance info. They're all like, okay, we'll check this out. They called me back an hour later. I went to the park and, and obtained drugs for the last time. I used that night. I didn't sleep that night. Um, um, the next day I rode my bike 17 miles from my house in Anaheim to the facility in Costa wow. Mesa. I'd been up for three or four days. I was a little paranoid. I was, oh, I'm sure. And I can I can relate to that feeling. I um, when I got clean, July 12th, when I checked in there, I weighed 126 pounds, wow. six foot three. Um, I was pretty emaciated. I was pretty broken. I was pretty hurt. I was pretty. Um, I I really needed to learn a lot about recovery, about myself, about life. I did, you know, I surrendered, man. Man, that, is that not the biggest thing when you look at the ingredients that made it made the biggest difference for us when we finally got sober? Is that level of surrender and how different? Surrender, and it was probably, so the facility that I was in was a huge facility. It probably, and it was a medical model. It was a hospital, <clears throat> but it was very, pretty nice. And they probably had 130 beds there, but, uh, there was probably 25 or 30 patients in the hospital. So I kind of had my own wing. And uh, first three or four nights, I really struggled with sleep and nightmares and fear and screaming. And I, <clears throat> I would, it wasn't uncommon for me to wake up with the staff, like waking me up saying like, are you okay, man? You've been screaming like at the top of your lungs. And I just, I think it was that internal battle inside mm -hmm. of me, you know, um, yin and yang and good, good, bad. And, and, dark and white and, and, and um, 
And something happened for me there, man, because I had worked first steps before. You know, um, I had this gentleman that was a sponsor of mine that when I went through that program in 93, he kept in touch with me. And so for those two years that I was out, um, he would call me every month. Hey, it's Kenny. How you doing? Just checking in on you. How are you doing? You still getting loaded? I'm all you up. He'd say, well, you know where I am on Saturday morning? And he'd hang up the phone. Mm. Hey, how you doing? Oh, my house burned down. Are you ready to get clean? No, not ready yet. Okay, well, you know where I am on Saturday morning. So on that day, July 12th, 1995, when I rode my bike down to that treatment facility, he was really good friends with the director of the program. And she called him up and said, hey, he's back. Wow. And he came down that afternoon. And, and something happened probably the second or third day where I like, I like surrendered, man. And I'm not, <coughs> not like, bush. thank you. Not like, not like I had done in treatment centers in the past where I had that first step worksheet where I like, what is your definition right. of surrender? I mean, like something internally, like in my gut, in my soul, like I, I like, I said, okay, I'm going to give this thing here. I'm going to give this thing here. I'm going to try it, man. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to work some steps. I'm going to like, I'm just not going to use no matter what happens. And so my process started. And I think that was a Tuesday, July 12th. Um, that Friday night, I was at, uh, because my sponsor was good friends with the program director, I got some liberties. And so I got to go to outside meetings with my sponsor on like day three. Um, <clears throat> and I found myself at this Narcotics Anonymous men's stag meeting in a garage in the middle of July in Costa Mesa, California, and it was 95 degrees and there was 50 men, a lot of them riding Harley Davidson's and wearing leather and like the kind of guys that like, but from outside appearances look pretty scary. Yeah. And they were all hugging each other and talking about love and 12 steps as a design for living. And I was going like, and then I remember this guy coming up to me and he had long hair and he had toe rings on his toes. This is 1995 and he's wearing like a tie dye shirt, and like, just like, he's still a friend of mine today. Yeah. He's got about 33 years of recovery and just, just being supported and being embraced. You know, and the process began for me, you know, and I started working steps and I started breathing and I started learning about myself and this thing we call recovery, you know, and for me, the, the week before I went into treatment, I got a job at Anaheim Stadium selling peanuts. I was a peanut vendor. So I was the guy walking through the stand, peanuts, say, get your peanuts. And the job paid very well. Um, so... I went into treatment and the angels went on their longest road trip of the year, three weeks. So they were gone on the road and I was in treatment that time. And my treatment team said, you need to keep that job. So I rode my bike from my treatment facility, 17 miles to Anaheim Stadium each day to sell peanuts, to vent peanuts. Wow. Um, I made really good money. They'd, they'd be home for two weeks. They'd go on the road for two weeks. And it was a great opportunity for me to complete my treatment, do some outpatient, and then develop a program of recovery in the 12-step community. So I went to AACA and NA. I went to about 20 meetings a week. You know, I'd seen this movie before. Um, 
and I wanted to have different results. And mm -hmm. so they told me that maybe I should get into service. And I was all like, service, what's that? Well, you get a responsibility and you're you're accountable to a group of other recovering people. You can uh, clean ashtrays. This is when no smoking in meetings. Right. You can do coffee, you can be a greeter at the door, you can be a secretary, you can be... So I got commitments. Um, I was going to about four CA meetings a week, about six AA meetings a week, and about seven, eight NA meetings a week. And I was at this meeting, I was about four months clean, and uh, sharing was hard for me. It took me a little while. My self-esteem was pretty shattered. My concept of self was pretty broken. Yeah. Um, physically, mentally, emotionally, you know? And I was at this meeting and I was sharing and this guy looks at me and says, dude, check it out. Find one, dive in there, get your commitments, stick with one. It's CA in Southern California in 1995 was beautiful. It was very small, but it was very supportive and very just uplifting, you know? And if I could say something that to, um, other people looking for recovery, man, it's really important on who your support system is because that's going to define that's going to define your progress. So getting sober, picking the right people to be <clears throat> be connecting with in early recovery is everything. Yeah, is everything because if I'm hanging out with the people that are engaging in illegal activities and scrupulous, and it, it's just a matter of time. Yeah. It's inevitable, you know, so I was fortunate enough to find a group of people and kind of get in with, and, um, you know, I, I started working steps, you know, I started working steps. I started looking at myself, you know, I think the 12 steps are a beautiful tool. Um, you know, for me, I thought all I had to do was stop using and drinking to change my life. And then somewhere in the process after a few failed attempts and after really like embracing it, I realized that stopping drinking and stopping using was the very beginning of the healing process. Mm -hmm. Right. That was the very beginning. Right. But I thought that was it. I thought, it, I thought that was the be it, the be all end all was like, I'm just going to get clean. I'm just going to stop. Okay. So I used for 22 years and then I'm just going to stop. Mm -hmm. So I had to change a lot of things. And, and for me, perception and thinking are the two biggest things that I had to deal with. Totally. But you can't get there. It's funny how I want to point out what your your tra trajectory was. It was, you know, you had acceptance, but it wasn't until you had radical acceptance that you were able to go to treatment and stay sober long enough to then go transition and, you know, take suggestion, transition into the rooms. You've peeled back the layers. Now you're raw. Now it's what you're talking about, which is the deep stuff. That's that where the work comes in. The work comes, the work in. comes in. Yeah. The work comes in. I can remember. So I didn't plan on any. All I wanted to do when I went to that place in Costa Mesa in 1995 was stop getting loaded. That's all I, I didn't have. I didn't have a whole lot of goals. I didn't. I didn't. Sure. I looked at my work history and like doing these things like this third, the first sec, the first three steps are about preparing me for like this inventory that I'm going to do. And I heard all these people talking about it, you know, and I, and I had done it a few times in my previous recovery attempts, but never really. And at one time I wrote like 150 pages on this four step and then got loaded. And, um, 
for me, you know, step six and seven are where the real, where the, where the rubber hits the road and step nine and 10, man, you know, that's, that's, um, you know, making amends to those people that I had wrong and, and making amends. It means changing. Amend means to change. Yeah. Right. It's not just saying sorry, but it's like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. You know, so my process was awesome. Um, it was painful. It was growing. It was, I learned a lot about myself. I was sitting in this recovery house. I, I ended up working in recovery. I've been working in recovery, my whole recovery in some form or fashion. I didn't plan that. It was just an opportunity that came my way. I didn't plan on doing any of the things that I've done. I just wanted to stop mm -hmm. that destructive lifestyle. Um, I can remember, and it was at one or two o'clock in the morning, and I was, I, 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 um, I changed sponsors like three or four times in my first couple of years, and I'd always get up to step six, and I'd get a new sponsor, get up to step six, get a new sponsor, and I finally got some traction and worked through the all the 12 steps, but, um, and I can remember I was writing on this third step and I had about 14 or 15 months and I was sitting in this recovery house and it was like a Monday, a Tuesday morning at two o'clock in the morning and I was smoking lots of cigarettes and drinking lots of coffee because that's what we did. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was there. I was there. Yeah. And, um, and this feeling came over me and it was like, you know what, you can do this thing a day at a time. Mm. You know, it, perception and thinking are two of my big words. And another one word that I really like is process. Because yeah. this thing we do is a process. It's not an event. And like the goal is recovery. You know, I can be abstinent and be miserable, or I can be clean and be working on myself and working towards some goals. I can set some goals. I can work on myself. I can define what I'm going to be, who I'm going to be, what, I'm, what do I, I was 30 years old and I'm all like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I want to do with my life. I know what I don't want to do. Yeah. I know. It's, uh, it's funny how you mentioned that because I think that, you know, everybody's story is different, but I think that something that so many of us can identify with is that by the time we finally get sober, we've been living so long, not, mm, not, not, you, goals were a foreign thing, right? If I had a goal, it was how am I going to stay okay right. today? How right. am I going to feel sick. the way I need to feel yeah. today? So right. when we get sober and we start in programming, whether it's in the rooms or in treatment, and we're getting asked to do, you know, like you said, these like, let's put it out on paper. Let's, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to, what are, yeah, I mean. Oh, I know what I don't want to do. Right. Okay. Define. Okay. This is what we want you to do. We want you to write a set of goals that you want for one year and five years. And I'm all like, okay, so on my five-year one, I had wanted a Harley Davidson. See, by the time I got two or three years clean, I realized I'm not really a Harley guy. Right. That's, 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 I don't, you know, I'm not. Yeah. Um, my experiences, you know, led me back to school, you know, led me to, um, you know, uh, working with other people. You know, I've been given a gift. I, for some, somehow, some way, I, you know, I've been there, I've walked in those shoes. And so, um, it just kind of unfolded. I didn't plan on it. It just happened. You know, um, I had a good friend that I met in the rooms. I don't know, between my first and second year, we were pretty close. We'd go to meetings. Um, I was living in a sober living home. I'd been there. 
I, I was running the sober living home. I started managing it when I was about six months. And wow. I ran it for almost two years. Um, and my buddy, we'd hang out, we'd go to meetings. And um, he kept saying, I want you to meet my dad. My dad's going to buy a bunch of sober living houses and he wants you to run them. And I'm all like, yeah, okay. Yeah, right. Uh -huh. You know, and one day there was a knock at the door and, and he did. He started buying houses and we started working together. And the tragedy of this story is my buddy Johnny um, had an overdose and died. Wow. Um, and we didn't, I thought he was clean. He was, he was taking ships. He was taking ships, dirty ships. And, um, you know, he used one weekend and it killed him. And it was super tragic. And, um, and I can remember calling his dad and saying, you know, what, whatever I can do for you, if you want me to um, make you dinner, if you whatever I can do, whatever, however I can help. And he says, oh, I appreciate that. Um, and he called me a couple of days later and he said, I want you to go down to Johnny's house and clean up his apartment where he died. Um, so, you know, the process, you know, it's been self, it's been a self exploration journey for me. It's been education. It's been awareness. It's been love. It's been, there's been a lot of things. It's, it's been a lot of God and I have really haven't, and, and it's been a belief system in God that I understand, you know, um, you know, uh, I didn't plan on doing a lot of the things that I did, but they just kind of opportunities presented themselves. And because I was clean and sober, I had the event. Yeah. I was able to take care of them. I went back to school. I got my credentials. I, um, you know, I um, worked in the Southern California treatment industry for a lot of years. And um, it was fun. It's awesome. You know, I could say at five years for me, at five years, we you said the, the word that it really stuck with me, you know, peeling back the skin. Yeah. Um, I had an experience where, um, you know, I, I just, it was like Chicken Little, the sky is falling. I'm about five years and two months clean. And um, I just got hit with this flood of emotions and everything was good in my life. I had service commitments. You know, I was working two jobs. I had a little money put away. I was in a pretty healthy relationship. You know, I was, I was living life. Um, and I just, the sky has fallen, you know, um, I can remember being in my shower, just crying. Like, I don't know what's going on with me, man. I don't know, you know, and, and I called my sponsor at the time and he's all like, fuck him. This is, this is part of the process. Like you really get into a place where, you know, it's real. You know, and that's when I got into therapy. That's kind of like was my yeah was my um, like well the rooms are great and everything, but sometimes and I used to call it sitting on a leather couch. You know, um, sometimes we need to look at all that stuff from when I was a kid, all that. Oh, absolutely. All that. There's trauma there. That, there's you know, trauma. Yeah. There's some causality there. There's yeah. some, so um, you know that's what I did. You know, and um, you know I did that for ten years. It's awesome. You know, it's a process. It's not yeah. an event, you know. Uh, it's been a wonderful process. I can remember at the beginning, they told me, you know, you're probably going to want to buy a black suit because you're probably going to go to a few weddings and you're probably going to go to a few funerals. Ain't that the truth? You know. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, I, um, I, what I did was I just got out of my way 
I let the miracle happen. I, I just like that the bottom line in the equation is I don't take a drink or use a drug no matter what's going on in my life. And there's a lot of no matter what. There are a lot of no matter what. You know? Yeah. So cool. Well, man, I really appreciate hearing uh, your story. It's kind of all over the place. Yeah. Kind of all over the place like our lives were and are, <laughs> yeah. you know? So, yeah. hey. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's great. I mean, you know, I always like to ask our, our speakers, um, you know, in closing remarks, is there anything that comes to mind or comes to your heart that you want to leave with anybody watching that may be struggling right now? Uh, if you're struggling, man, please reach out. Please reach out. Please reach out to someone. You can reach out to us. You can reach out to a family member or a loved one. Um, you don't have to struggle alone. I There's no, we don't do this thing alone. That's right. We don't do this thing alone, you know. If you're struggling, reach out. Yeah. Please. You know, there's many venues and arenas. I think recently in the last five or ten years, I have mental health is something really that uh, music industry uh, stars. There's been a lot of tragedies uh, with social icons. Yeah. You know, and I think it, it's very tragic, but I think at the same time, it's really brought a, a light to mental health people struggling with completely yeah you know um so if you're struggling reach out please for more information on today's episode check out the show notes recovery stories is brought to you by promises behavioral health's rooted alumni community if you or a loved one are struggling have questions or ready to take the next step call our admission center at 877-351-7504 or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help whether you're watching on youtube facebook instagram or listening on spotify or apple Podcasts, please share with your friends follow subscribe and leave us a review we are grateful for you and hope that you have been encouraged by today's episode as all Always remember you are only one decision away from a completely different life and it is never too late to start loving yourself.